Look woozy too. Yeah, you don't all look woozy. You look woozy. Yeah. Are you woozy? I do, yeah. For good reasons or bad? Mm, probably bad. I don't know. <laughs> what, what counts as a bad reason? Staying up too late doing work is a bad reason. That's a good reason. That's a good reason? Smoking like a fat blunt before class. Well, that's not why. (laughs) (laughs) So in the scheme of things, staying up doing work is all right. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, fair enough. It's a great reason then. Okay, what do we think of this poem? How is it the intimations ode? What, you didn't think I was going to ask that? (laughs) Yes. Crisis lyrics. Is that what you were? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, good. Um, So what's the problem? What are the solutions? When you say he's got a problem and he throws solutions at it. Okay, so did I say what poem we were talking about? Did I mention the title? Oh, uh, no, no, no. The, the oh, state, no don't say another word. Don't say another word. Did I mention the title? I just don't remember whether I said it. Uh, but I didn't. I said, so how is this like the intimations ode? Oh, yeah, you didn't and, it and you took the it to be Mont Blanc. How many people took the it to be Mont Blanc? Um, and how many people took it to be Child Roland? And how many people... No, 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 this is great. Um, how many people um, thought that he was talking about Child Roland? At first, yeah. At first. <laughs> and had he not said Mont Blanc, had he just said it instead of Mont Blanc, um, how, many, how, how well would that have worked for Child Roland? Yeah, so what if he just said large towering thing, thing towering into the air, um, because he'd forgotten the word for mountain or something, um, which can happen. Um, then how many people would have... Okay, wait, wait. Oh, perfect, perfect, perfect. Stop. Okay, can you repeat what you said, but um, with the kind of Jamesian ambiguity, cultivate a Jamesian ambiguity, that is, don't use names. So what, we were do, what we're asking is, how is this poem like the intimations ode? Go. No, just roughly. How's it like uh, the intimation well, zone? said that, that um, the, the author is, is, is faced with a problem and, and, and he throws different solutions and, and ways to deal with the problem uh, at it and they don't always stick and, and that he's dealing with some towering things. Are <laughs> <laughs> we not towering things? No, no, no. He's dealing with a towering thing. Oh. Some towering thing which, which um, he tries to, to balance with like mind and understanding, but really beyond um, the human mind and something otherworldly. Okay, so 
so th we're doing a little experiment here, like the question, how many animals of each kind did Moses bring into the ark with him? Do you know? Anyone you know? know? Uh-uh. Nope, nope. Anyone know? One. Kosher and non-kosher, there's a difference. But how many animals of each kind did Moses bring into the ark? Do you pronounce... One. One? one? Yeah, each kind. One yeah, okay, one. good, good. Um, do you pronounce the capital of Florida Miami or Miami, technically? Tallahassee. Yes! And how many animals did Moses bring into the ark? None. Zero. The only, ark, the only thing Moses put into an ark was the covenant. Um, and no animals, whatever. This is known as the Moses illusion. You hear Moses, you think Bible, you hear animals and ark, and it all makes sense, except it doesn't. This is what a lot of people think poetry is, but it's not. Um, okay, so what poem are we talking about? Here, you heard, Mariel, you heard, what poem was that that he, that he just described? Um, you weren't really listening, were you? I was listening. Yeah, you were. You said, we're, are we now all towering things? So what poem was he? Okay, interesting. Um, Just going off the towering, you know? I mean, unless we've already started talking about the next poem, in which case we were talking about that one. Uh huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you yes. no, 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 no. He was actually talking about birches. So the tree, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. The tree, you know, he has to deal with the problem. There's this towering thing in the sky. Um, it's kind of otherworldly, you know, a world we've lost, a world that's gone forever, right? So I said, I said, what's this poem about, thinking that everyone knew that we were talking about child roll until the dark terror came. So I neglected to announce the subject. Um, and it was, it was like a hilarious 1930s screwball comedy because it turned out he was talking about something else. Um, but it all made sense. Um, <laughs> and, and people were rolling in the aisles. As you can see, they've just barely recovered. Um, <laughs> Well, if they hadn't been smoking as they walked up the hill, they would have had more energy to laugh. What? <laughs> Were you smoking as you walked up the hill? No, I was not. No, okay. He's the one who brought it up. No, I know he was. Um, okay, so uh, what the question I asked was, how is this poem like the Intimations Ode? Um, and then we were talking about the other guy. Or some of us were talking about one poem and some of us were talking about another poem. Um, but that's great because you can also ask um, how is Child Roland to the Dark Tower came like Mont Blanc, which is like the Intimation Zone, which is like Birch's, which is like um, There Was a Young Man from Nantucket, which is <laughs> like um, which, is, which is like many, many, it's all really it's in like the station of the metro. Desk. Yeah, which is like a which is like a raven, which is like a writing desk. It's like a raven because it says nevermore, but what the human mind says, what would nevermore be if to the mind's imaginings silence and solitude were vacancy, right? I mean that is the raven, if you think about it. So remember we talked about similes as how is everything like everything else? Um, a simile is always true because it says one thing's like another, and a metaphor is always false because it says one thing is another. Um, so um, that's a way you could say, um, on a very basic and local level, that's a way of describing poetic thinking, um, metaphors and similes. Uh, similes which force the mind to 
um, uh, acknowledge a truth that is true automatically, um, and yet somehow that truth is supposed to mean, be meaningful. Metaphors force the mind to accept um, as though it is true something that's false. Um, if we plug in to the terms of a simile or a metaphor um, poems, the kinds of questions we've been asking for the last couple of weeks are, are how is Mont Blanc the same poem as the Intimations Ode? How is Birch's the same poem as the Intimations Ode? That's a kind of metaphorical way of thinking, to say they're the same, because they're not the same. Um, but what they are is similar. But if we then say, well, how are they similar? Um, well, all poems are similar to each other because everything in the universe is similar to everything else in the universe. Um, so fo focusing on those questions, um, seeing the way they interweave with each other, seeing the way um, the, the idea that they're the same poem forces you to um, a kind of falsehood which is itself at the heart of metaphor and therefore at the heart of poetry. Um, they're not the same poem. They're, they're different in every, they're, they're simply distinct poems in every way that you want to talk about distinct poems. Um, talking about them as similar and yet having that be a meaningful thing to say rather than a tautological thing to say um, also forces you to think in a certain way. And the way it forces you to think is in a sense what these poems take as their subject. That is to say, in a sense, we could rewrite the first line of Mont Blanc as the everlasting universe of poems flows through the mind and rolls its rapid waves. Um, and then think about, so which is to be master, the reader or the poem? The reader or the writer? The writer or the poem? Um, those are all questions that we can ask um, because they're the questions, in a sense, that Wordsworth is asking in the Intimations Ode. I see the world, and it doesn't mean anything to me. Um, and that's really sad, because it used to mean something to me. Which is more important, the, the adverting mind, to quote Shelley's Mont Blanc, the mind that sees the world, or the world that exists independently of the mind, so sometimes the mind is adequate to the world and sometimes it isn't. Where is, there's a great line by Wallace Stevens, the mind to find what, well, it's actually a couplet, the mind to find what will suffice destroys romantic tenements of rose and ice. Um, so the mind looks for something that will be enough for it to find what will suffice. The mind to find what will suffice destroys romantic tenements of rose and ice. Stevens almost never rhymes. When he does, um, there's always something a little bit forced about his rhymes. He's not a great rhymer, but he knows that. And he sort of wants you to pay attention, that he's willing to rhyme in order to, pay, to make you pay attention. But so think about it. Romantic tenements of rose and ice. What's a tenement? A building? What well, like kind of a building? Rundown building, like a ghetto. 
Yeah, it's a kind of it's very cheap. Um, it's it's literally a place where people can live, where they can where where um, they can um, hold um, a, a home or a place to live. But um, yeah, it's basically um, very cheap housing stock. Um, there's a tenement museum on the Lower East Side in New York. Very cheap housing stock, not worth the living in if you can get anything better. It, they should be destroyed. Better things should be built up. So the mind looks for what will suffice. It destroys a romantic tenement of, of rose and ice. Rose and ice, a very odd combination. Unless you say that, well, a romantic tenement of rose might be something like the Intimations Ode. The rainbow comes and goes, and lovely is the rose. A romantic tenement of ice might be Mont Blanc. Mont Blanc. And the mind looks for what will suffice, so it destroys the outside world, because it's looking for something that will be enough for the mind. But it may also be that it destroys the outside world because nothing is enough, and it just feels its own loss. That, that line, that summary, the, the, the mind to find what will suffice destroys romantic tenements of rose and ice, you can read that as a good thing. The mind is master of the world. Or you can read it as a bad thing. I've lost everything. And everywhere I look, there's a tree of many one, a single field that I have looked upon. Everywhere that I look, it's gone. Everywhere. Can you say that line one more time? Which one? The, the mind to find what will suffice? or the mind, to find what will suffice, destroys romantic tenements of rose and ice. So is that a successful or a failed quest? It's not the mind finds what will suffice when it destroys romantic tenements of rose and ice. That would be a much easier set of lines to read. It's in order to try to find in order to attempt to find what will suffice. It's destructive. And that the question is, is that destruction successful or is it a failure? So that was Stevens' summary, you could say, of the Intimations Ode, his summary of Mont Blanc, maybe his summary of Child Roland. So what is Child Roland about? Now I will say what poem we're talking about. Um, you could look on with Henry. Oh, you have it. OK, good. So what is Child Roland about? Struggles of the mind with the towering thing. Sorry? Struggles of the mind against a towering thing. Struggles of the mind against a towering thing. Yes, good. Yeah. I mean, it's about, well, obviously this man, Child Roland, who's looking for something. I think the thing that always confuses me about this poem is it's, I'm never quite sure if what he's looking for is the dark tower. Mm-hmm. Or if he's looking for something else, and he just finds himself drawn to the dark tower. Okay, and he's not, I don't think Browning is very explicit about which one it is. Okay, where, why, what would the evidence be either way? What's the evidence that he's looking, or not, or maybe that we don't know whether he's looking for the dark tower? We're obviously not going to go through this poem line by line because we don't have time, but we will look at a couple of lines. Yeah. Well, he he seems to know that the dark tower is hidden on the path that the old man's pointing to. Okay, good. But. He, he suggests that to find it would be a failure of his mission. Okay, so um, what is um, his mission then? Yeah. It seems kind of like he has to do something <clears throat> like in the Dark Tower, 
or something like that, but he knows that at this point he would never reach it. Mm-hmm. But, and that, like, to go towards it would be to die, but he does it anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, and he talks a lot about, like, failing is, like, kind of good because then you don't have to quest anymore. Okay, good. Kind of, like, dying is okay because then you don't have to deal with the world anymore. Good. So let's start just with this, that um, he is certainly at some point looking for the Dark Tower. Um, the reason that he's looking for it um, may be different from the reason for his original quest. We don't know. Um, what we do know, we talked about this already. So one thing you should know is that I think it was in 1854, Browning um, gave himself the New Year's resolution to write a poem a day. Um, and it would be hard for you to copy out Child Roland to the Dark Tower came in a day, um, but so he just sat down and wrote it. Um, so it's, um, I, think it, I think it was two weeks into the year. It was like the 13th or 14th poem he wrote that year, um, early, mid-January. Um, and the title is from what? Yeah. Um, and there's um, a parenthesis, C. Edgar's Song in Lear. So just one thing to notice, um, if, you, if you have the Norton, they do it right if you found it online. Um, not so much, or not necessarily. The title should have quotation marks around it, um, which the Norton version does, right? So that's the only title you'll find, or almost the only title you'll find in the Norton, that has quotation marks around it, um, because the quotation marks are part of the title. Generally, we put quotation marks around titles to show that they're titles. Um, but if you were to write about Child Roll into the Dark Tower came, what you would have to write is, in Browning's poem, quote, single quote, Child Roll into the Dark Tower came, close single quote, close double quote. Um, we see that he is simply rewriting the intimations out. Um, so the quotation marks are part of the title. Why? Because it's a quote from something else. And so his title is not his title, it's a quotation. Yeah. I, I this actually never really occurred to me, but the only place where the title actually appears in the poem is also in quotation marks. Right. It's something that the main character is saying. Which, right. Which could indicate that Child Roland is not this guy's name at all. It's just something he says at the end. Okay. It's a yeah. quote from the narrator. Yeah. That actually reminded me of um, the, the boy stood on the burning deck, Stabbert reciting right. the boy stood on the ground. Exactly. Loves the boy stood on the burning deck trying to recite the boy stood on the burning deck. So at the very end of the poem, um, the speaker, who at least provisionally let's call Roland, um, it might be interesting to see what happens if you think he might not be Roland, um, but provisionally let's call him Roland. Um, the speaker brings the slughorn to his lips and blows and um, presumably what he blows <coughs> and and utters in doing so. The word slughorn, um, you guys, I think, have a footnote on it, is Browning's misconstrual um, of a word which, um, I think because of a typo, um, the, the right word which in some sense he knew is slogan. Um, that is, slug. he thought there was such a thing as a slughorn. 
um, but a slughorn was a misreading of a variation of the word slogan. What a slogan is, now we think of a slogan as, you know, um, a catchphrase. Not even a, like yeah. Like an advertisement. Almost. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a laundromat in Somerville which has in quotation marks over its door, quote, you do it or we do it, unquote. <laughs> I thought it was just an amazingly lame slogan. Um, you do it or we do it. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, but that was a slogan. Um, or um, the Tyrell Corporation, more human than human. Anyone know what the Tyrell Corporation is? It's, um, they build replicants in Blade Runner. Huh. Um, so more human than human. That's Mr. Tyrell's slogan. It's like a thing from a movie that's too creepy to be in real life. Yes. It <laughs> yeah, it is too creepy to be in real life. Well, so is you do it or we do it, but <laughs> creepy for a different reason. Um, so, but, so a slogan would be, if you take it more seriously, what a slogan actually comes from are, this, are Scottish um, clans. Um, when they went into battle, would cry out their slogans. Um, so, God or my right, um, or um, truth even into its innermost parts, unto its innermost parts, those are slogans. Uh, some are better than others. Um, um, so, you could say that, that if you take the, the background of slogan seriously, then it is this line, child roll into the dark tower came. Um, that's the, that's the line that would sing to battle for, let's call him Roland. Okay, so here's the situation. It's um, January, and for whatever reason, this line is on Browning's mind, Child Roland to the Dark Tower came. A line that if you see Edgar's song in Lear, what you will find is Edgar, who is pretending to be mad, simply says out of nowhere, Child Roland to the Dark Tower came. Um, and that has no reference to anything whatever in Lear. So there's this line in King Lear. It's a song, a line from a song. See Edgar's song in King Lear. A line from a song, and in that line, Child Roland to the Dark Tower came. And um, what I think Browning felt was that's an amazing line. Um, it's both good and bad that we don't have a context for it. It's bad because it's, it promises so much and yet it's opaque. We don't know who Child Roland is, what the Dark Tower is, and why it matters that he came there. Matters enough that came is the last word of the line. Obviously there's a crescendo there. If the line were simply, Child Roland came to the Dark Tower, you would expect stuff to happen after that. Child Roland came to the Dark Tower. He knocked on the door. Then a light went on, and the tower wasn't so dark anymore. Um, he went in and um, had a cup of joe, and then left and met a friend of his who said, where have you been? He said, oh, I had my morning coffee at the Dark Tower Cafe. Or at the Tower Cafe. It was dark when I got there, but when I knocked, they opened up, so it's all fine. Um, just not very interesting. But the fact that it ends with came, that somehow the triumph of the line, just do you hear, just if you hear it rhythmically, child roll into the dark tower came, that ending presses on the word came. And that must be what haunts Browning, as it haunts many readers of King Lear. 
that is that something has happened there. Child Roland to the Dark Tower came. And what it is or why that's a good thing, we don't know. But that's what, that seems a conclusive line. There are lines, I think, again, this is something, try, try this at home. But when you come upon an epigraph or motto that you really like, um, and you've all had that experience, right? Um, try to ask yourself, could this be the first line of something? Could it be a medial line, something not the first line, but also not the last line? Or could it be the last line? And I think if you ask yourself that about Child Roland to the Dark Tower came, it's clearly a last line. If it's not a last line, it won't be powerful. So it's almost as though here's Browning one day who says, here's this line, I know nothing about it except that it's powerful. But wait, I actually do know something else about it. It's got to be a last line. Why does it have to be a last line? Because if it's not a last line, it's not powerful. If it's not a last line, it's far less powerful. If you read Lear, I think I didn't mention, I, I haven't told you guys this, but quotation marks are um, only come into general use. That is inverted commas, as they're called. Um, goose feet in um, German, because they kind of look like goose feet. Um, quotation marks only come into general use um, in the 18th century. Um, the way you knew something was quoted before the 18th century, if you were reading a text, there were, there were various ways that you could know. But the main way that you knew was there'd be a word like said that would introduce it or that would conclude it. That is, um, get out of here, said the red rat. Um, and the reason in English we almost always put the subject before the verb except when we're talking, when we do dialogue. I will not go, said Jane. You must, said Dick. We can have fun, said Dick. Okay, said Jane. Um, that inversion where the subject comes after the verb, which is very uncommon in English otherwise, um, that's because it's part of the way we can keep track of quotation that the said appears right next to the quotation. So if, you, if it were something like, come out and play, Jane said, you would have to pause to decide whether it was come out and play, Jane said, oops, that's called a, a garden path sentence, a sentence where you think you're understanding it, um, and it turns out that you're not. Come out and play, Jane said, or come out and play, Jane said, Oh, wait, said who? Oh, I have to go back and reinterpret the entire sentence. Come out and play Jane, said Dick. Or come out and play Jane. <laughs> or come out and play Jane, said, never mind. This is, Dick and Jane are too hard. Back to Browning. Um, so um, no quotation marks in Shakespeare. No, no quotation marks because Shakespeare didn't know about them. They didn't exist. Um, he knew about quotation, but not about quotation marks. But also, even if, he, if you look at a modern edition of Shakespeare and you see Edgar's song in Lear, what you'll see Edgar saying is, Child Roland to the dark tower came. His word was still fee-fi and fum. I smell the blood of a British man. And uh, the question is, 
is Edgar quoting the whole time? His word is fee fi and fum, I smell the blood of a British man. Or does the quotation end with, child roll into the dark tower came, and then Edgar in his mad way comments on that. His word was still fee fi and fum, I smell the blood of an Englishman. Browning clearly takes it to be that the quotation is simply, child roll into the dark tower came, the end. There's nothing about the Jack and the Beanstalk giants in this poem. Um, so he takes it to be the end of the poem. So we know a little bit more, you could say, when we, and by we I mean Browning, we know a little bit more than simply that this line appears in King Lear. We know that it's going to be the end of whatever it comes from. That's how Browning is understanding it. It's climactic. That's the end. It happened. Child Roland to the Dark Tower came. And therefore, his first decision is to make it the last line of the poem, because it should be the last line of its source. And so it's as though what he's doing is writing the poem that Edgar is quoting. But again, the experience that we have when we come upon a, an amazing quotation and then we look it up in the original, this is actually the, an experience many people have had with the bishop, with um, the boy stood on the burning deck, and then they look at Hemans's version of Casabianca, and they're disappointed by it. So here's the amazing quotation. If you're disappointed by its context, um, that'll kind of ruin the quotation for you, unless you can somehow forget that context. So Browning knows that he doesn't have to worry about being disappointed by the context of Child Roll Into the Dark Tower came. Um, but of course, if someone then publishes an article in, in a 19th century journal saying, I've gone through the Balliol Library and I found an old manuscript and it contains this old poem um, um, about a character named Roland which contains this line, Child Roland to the Dark Tower came. Would you like to read it? What do you think Browning is going to say? Of course. Of course not. I don't believe, I don't, well, think, he could, I don't think he could overcome his curiosity. He would have to read it. Okay, well, maybe. maybe, And maybe that's what Roland is doing in the poem. Um, so, nevertheless, what he's assigned himself the task of doing is writing the poem that Edgar quotes from. But what he really doesn't want to do is screw it up. It's an incredibly hard task. He wants to write this poem. He wants it to end with this line. And he doesn't want to screw it up by making it the kind of poem he would be disappointed to find that the line really came from. So that's the moment of inspiration. Fantastic line. He's given a fantastic line. Can he write a poem adequate to that line? Is there a poem in the world adequate to that line? That's a, that's a question we could ask also. Could there be a poem in the world adequate to that line? So. He starts, my first thought was, why, is the, why are the first words, remember he knows nothing except what he's going to discover by writing the poem. Here's this line, he thinks it's a great line, and he starts writing. And you could say that he, it's probably not true, but it's, but it's at least a useful idea, that he writes straight through. 
that Browning, who had just amazing improvisatory powers, um, starts writing just to see almost free rights, except in rhyme and meter, to see where it's going to go. <coughs> well, Browning could do that. Um, so, um, freestyling, yeah. Do you think that, so this was just like, this one a day, that you just like run out of ideas and started looking for quotes? Started no, no, I think that if you're doing one a day, um, that frees you to do anything. I mean, no one has ever accused Browning of not having enough to say. Um, that's really, um, it's, uh, he would write about anything at the drop of a hat. Uh, the famous quip about him, very unfair quip, but quip that Oscar Wilde um, said about Browning. There's a novelist named George Meredith who's impossibly hard um, to read, really great, but impossibly hard. Um, an incredibly clotted and difficult stylist. And um, what Wilde said about Meredith was, he's a prose Browning, but then so is Browning. Um, so Browning just wrote an enormous amount. It's probably, if, if you spent your life reading Browning, you would have read a lot in your life, even if you read nothing else. Um, so he's actually, I mean, he's really an amazingly great poet, but um, strongly underread because there's so much of him that's so good. Um, so here he sits down to write this poem. And so what words are you going to write if you're just decided you're going to write and you want to get to Child Rollins to the Dark Tower came? What's the first thing you're going to have? An old man. Well, even before an old man, you're going to have something else. Roland. Roland. So that would be the my. Okay. And um, what's Roland going to have to do? Go to travel. Travel. Sorry? Set out the mile. Yeah, set out. Good. Yeah. I mean, I think part of what we identified about the strangeness of the line at the end is it's sort of a very counterintuitive step for your first step to make, to put it in the first person. Yeah, okay, the, good. The title is in the third person. Sorry. Okay, good. If you're writing a poem about Child Roland. The title is, is in the third person, not right. the first person. Good. So why, why does he decide to write it this way? Good. So why in the first person? Well, hang on to that thought. I think that's a, that's a really good question, and I think it's got a very deep answer. Just as an impulse, why write it in the first person and not in the third? Especially if Roland is going to be strange and different. The whole point about Roland is we know nothing about him except he's kind of got this opaque charisma about him in that line, Child Roland to the Dark Tower came. And here's Browning, who wants to understand but not ruin the line, and he puts it in the first person, which in a sense seems like just the wrong thing to do. Yeah? Yeah, or at some point he might get to the place where there will be something said about him in the third person. What kind of thing? So we talked about a slogan. Where else might you find that the only thing that counted about Roland, about his entire life? Yeah. Sorry? Tombstone. Tombstone, an epitaph. That is, what if you came upon his, a rock in the woods on a 
new grave, and all it said was Child Roland to the Dark Tower came. That would be interesting to you. So, here's Browning thinking about that shift, let's say, from first person to third person. In real life, we call that shift from first person to third person dying. So, here's Browning thinking about these things and thinking about wanting to get Roland right and thinking about writing this poem. And let's say, um, since we now have some experience saying this, that this poem, Child Roland to the Dark Tower, came like the intimations of, like Mont Blanc, like Birches, like the boy stood on the burning deck, like Lullaby, um, <clears throat> that this poem is about poetry. Not only about poetry, but about writing a poem. This, more obviously than any poem we've done, is about writing a poem. So if you were to write a poem about writing the poem that you're writing, what would be the funny version of the first line of that poem? So let's say you called it My Poem by Me. That's the title, My Poem by Me. And Okay, I don't know how to start this. Or, here is the first line of my poem. <laughs> or, I don't know how to start this except by saying this is the first line of my poem. What an awful title. <laughs> yes, so don't call it my poem by me. Call it Child Roll Into the Dark Tower Came. Because the Dark Tower would be the end of the poem. So, my first thought was that I would write down what three words, what four words. Yeah. It's self-describing. It's perfectly self-describing here. He has nothing to go on except that line. So, so, but he's got to start. So here beginneth. My first thought was. Notice that he's not going to give you second thoughts. He really plunges, as they say, in medias race. Do people know what that term means, to plunge in medias race, Maya? Yeah. And... Yeah, this is what Horace, the great Roman poet, wrote, you won't be surprised to find out, a poetic work about the nature of poet, poetry called the Ars Poetica. Um, and what he says, so it's, it's one of the great works of criticism, and in it, but it's written in poetry, and in it he says that an epic poet, and he's thinking of Homer in particular, he says, plunges in medias race. That's a very famous slogan. How everything comes together a very famous slogan, which is that you plunge right, in the, right into the midst of things. Paradise Lost begins with Satan plunging into hell and stunned into unconsciousness as he hits the burning lake of fire in hell. And that's, that's Satan plunges into hell and Milton plunges into the middle of things plunges right into the middle of the story. The Iliad begins nine years into the Trojan War with the capture of the daughter, Chryseis, of the um, Trojan priest, which Apollo is really unhappy about. The Odyssey begins with Odysseus shipwrecked on an island. The Aeneid begins with um, Aeneas escaping, um, burning Troy. Um, so starting right in the middle of the action, we get that in hard-boiled pulp novels now. Um, something like um, the guy with the gun raised it towards me. That could be a first line. 
or think of Trinity and the Matrix. I know this is all <laughs> ancient history, but it begins with, with Trinity being chased. Um, we have no idea what's going on. Action immediately gets you right into it. Um, immediate action. James Bond movies specialize in this. Um, that we're at the that James Bond movies start with a climactic, at the climax of a chase scene. We have no idea who the villain is. We have no idea why Bond is doing what he's doing. We have no idea why he's had to jump out of this plane without a parachute. Um, and it doesn't matter. We're immediately gripped by the action. So that's what Browning is doing. My first thought was, so he's got to have a thought. Um, what thought is it going to be? Well, he's got to have an antagonist if there's going to be action right away. So that antagonist, though, is an antagonist who is going against Roland, seeking the Dark Tower, let's say, since the climax will be that he comes to the Dark Tower, but also against who else is seeking the Dark Tower besides Roland? And who else is therefore entitled to use the word my? <coughs> this is a really easy question. Browning. Browning. Yeah, Browning is trying to find the Dark Tower, and so is Roland. Roland by questing, Browning by writing. So that writing and questing, writing is for Browning what questing is for Roland. So what is the terrain of Browning's quest? If he finds an antagonist in his quest in the first line, in his very first thought, what is the terrain of the quest of Browning the poet? Is it things? No, it's people. Um, it's people, except that he's alone in his room writing. Thoughts. Thoughts. Um, and thoughts get expressed in? Words. Words. Um, so my first thought was, he lied in every word. So the first line of the poem is a struggle about the truth or falsity of words, a struggle over the believability of words. So my first thought was he lied in every word. So now it's like a crystal, or actually physicists, a quasi-crystal, propagating outwards. Um, first he has this line from Shakespeare. Then he has his own first line. Here is the first line of my poem. But when you're browning, you don't say, here is the first line of my poem. You say, my first thought was he lied in every word, because that gives you an antagonist. And now he has to answer, OK, who? And about what did he lie? So now he invents a perfect fairy tale fantasy world antagonist, the troll, let's say. But he doesn't want this to be just a fantasy, although close enough. He doesn't want it to be a fairy tale, though close enough. So instead of a troll, a cripple will do. I mean, we're reconstructing how he must have gone about this. The details don't matter that much, but it's just worth seeing how much that first line as an exercise to get to the poem, as an improvisatory exercise to get to the poem, is just the right first step in an improv improvisation. Did you want to say something, Marielle? No? OK. So my first thought was he lied in every word. Who lied? That hoary cripple. What hoary cripple? The one with, the, with malicious eye askance to watch the working of his lie on mine. On my what? Eye. On my eye, yeah, but also on my lie, maybe. Um, I think it's clearly I. I think that Browning didn't even give a second thought to the idea that the hoary cripple is watching um, the working of his lie on, um, 
Roland's eye. But yet there's also the possibility dimly there that they're both lying. And mouth scarce able to afford suppression of the glee that person scored its edge. What's edge? Yeah, so Glee is pursing and scoring the his mouth's edge, the Horry Cripple's mouth's edge, and one more victim gained thereby by telling a lie. So, okay, that's a pretty good start. He starts improvising, and he's right there, Horry Cripple sending Roland off into a fool's errand by lying, which is what such guardians of the crossroad do. It's not actually a crossroad because there isn't a road crossing the road that he's on, but he goes off the road. He goes perpendicular to it, so it's like a crossroad. And then, so he's written the first stanza. It's taken him um, a lot less time than it's taken us to read it. Um, so then he asks himself a question. He, Browning, asks himself a question, and he, Roland, asks himself a question, and that question is... Yeah. So it's clear that this is a good start, a hoary cripple, because I have to have an antagonist. And he's since the terrain is words, the antagonist has to be a liar. That has to be the mode of his antagonism. Um, so I got the first stanza. That all makes sense. But now I have to ask myself, um, what's he doing there? So this is almost as though, you know those dreams that you have where um, they're not they're certainly not lucid dreaming, but you're close enough to being awake that you're interpreting the dream even as you dream. Um, it's also a good way to get back to sleep. That is, you have a dream, you wake up, you really want to go back to sleep, you can't. So you start thinking about your dream. And if you're lucky, thinking about your dream will conduct you back to sleep. Have you guys had that experience? Yeah. I mean, I think maybe you guys don't have that much trouble sleeping in the mornings. Not but, me. Yeah. Um, so imagine something like that. That is that he's interpreting this daydream as he dreams it. So what else should he be set for with his staff? Question that a poet asks herself or himself when thinking, so what am I going to do with this part about it? He's brainstorming with himself. He's having a story conference with himself. Um, you know, this is what the writers of Lost had to do all the time. They just produced insane amounts of possible plot, caches of things that they could use for plot. Do you guys? And they forgot about several of them by the end. Yeah, but they just, anything they needed, they knew they had some weird thing buried somewhere on the island or on some city or in some, some um, um, what do they call it in, in Harry Potter? Those, those Horcrux. Yeah, Horcrux. That anything they needed, they had. It lost its huge show. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm glad that most of you know what Lost is, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yes? Who doesn't? Okay, yeah, it's a TV show. It's kind of wild. Um, and partly it's kind of wild because it just, it's, it, it produces enormous amounts of bizarre material just as a matter of course. Whenever they don't know what to do, something bizarre happens. Um, and then people say, oh, that's a bizarre thing. Who knew? Um, and then they forget about it, but two seasons later, completely new writers, they fired their writers at the, en at the end of every season, completely new writers, look at the old shows and they say, hey, remember that, that strange, those strange dolls in the middle of the forest on that plane that shouldn't have been there? We could do something with those dolls. Um, 
And so, in a way, that's what um, Browning is doing, is saying, okay, so hoary cripple, but why? Um, and he gives an answer. What else should he be set for with his staff? What save to waylay with his lies and snare all travelers who might find him posted there and ask the road? I guessed what skull-like laugh would break, what crutch gin write my epitaph for pastime in the dusty thoroughfare, if at his counsel I should turn aside into that ominous tract which all agree hides the dark tower. So this is, I think, why Ben raises the question, is he looking for the dark tower or not? Well, the hoary cripple says, go that way. And he says, well, if I turn aside, I will be going into that ominous tract which all agree hides the dark tower. Now, hides and all agree, in a way, those are in tension with each other. And the key word there is turn aside. Yeah. He's not directing himself toward it. He's turning from his main purpose toward the dark tower. OK, good. On the other hand, you could say the key word there is hides. That is, that's not the way to get to the dark tower, because if you go that way, you're going not to where the Dark Tower is or where it's findable, but where it's hidden. Go that way. Just think of this as Harry Potter, um, because she thought of this, too. If you go that way, that's the right direction to the Dark Tower, but only the Dark Tower as hidden, not the Dark Tower as found. Want to find the Dark Tower? Look in the mirror of Erised. Um, so that's part of what's going on here. Just very quick question. What does the word tract mean there? Sorry? Well, a tract of land is just a bunch of land. Um, but what else can tract mean metaphorically? Uh, yeah, a writing. A pamphlet, um, but any sort of writing. Um, so the tract, you know, the, the book, uh, books of the Talmud are called tracts. Um, so a tract that hides the dark tower. For Browning, not for Roland, what tract hides the dark tower? King Lear. King Lear. So if at his counsel, I should turn aside into King Lear, where the dark tower is but hidden, is as a hidden thing. OK, no doubt we will finish this tomorrow. <laughs> you don't believe me? <laughs>